There's a whole bunch of questions here, and some of them are quite short, and the answers are quite short, and others are longer. I think I better just make a start. I don't want to overload you with too much information, but we'll see how we go. So the first question, what are the components of Nama Rupa? Basically, Nama is name, Rupa, form, name and form. So Nama Rupa is like an ultra short form for what I've referred to already as the five khandas, the five aggregates. This morning I was talking about form, which is rupa, and then feeling, perception, mental formations, and sense consciousness. Those are the constituents of nama. So nama rupa just means what makes up a human being. And our practice is to challenge the natural identification with these aspects of this body and mind. That actually links into another question, but I don't know if I can find it right now. Oh yes, here we are. As I understand it, there is no fixed or permanent self, as our views, feelings, and emotions change constantly, and also the body can be dissected into the four elements. But there is something there that lets us act and create in a certain characteristic way. What is that? This is an important question because I think it's one that many people have. If I'm not the mind, if I'm not the body, then what on earth am I? There's certainly something here that's experiencing life. And that's certainly true. The way that I've been taught and encouraged is to not actually worry too much about what it is, <laughs> but more just to be it as far as possible. So one of the practices we do sometimes is like asking impossible questions like koans. What am I? When you're sitting quietly, just what am I? Or what's here? Or what knows? And with each of these questions, when you ask it from a sort of quiet place, focused internally, and listen for the answer, rather than settling for an intellectual response, something that you analyze in your mind, just actually allowing the space that arises after the question, because there isn't actually an intellectual answer. I mean, we can make one up, but there isn't one. But basically, is awareness. So many teachers I've heard who've responded to such a question, they usually say, well, there is awareness, without actually even trying to explain it. This can be quite challenging, because, you know, particularly if we're used to having answers to things, a clear sense of things, and to suddenly be told, just be it, be the awareness, be the knowing, to one of Ajahn Sumedho's favorite phrases. So the answer to that question is, there is the awareness, there is the knowing. Certainly, I suppose I could also say that there are the mental habits that we accumulate over a lifetime, you know, depending on our life experience, our responses to certain things. What is evolved then is a certain way of seeing things and reacting to things. But these are just like conditioned reactions, conditioned responses. There's no, like when you look into it, although it might seem like very much like you and something that you strongly identify with, when you really look into it, what you'll begin to find is that actually that's not who and what you really are. These are just conditions that have been 
programmed in, if you like. But like everything else, they arise and cease and change. And when you're really still, really quiet, they won't actually seem relevant. <laughs> There's just a sense of quiet. No answer to this question. So I'm afraid that's all I can say about that one. But I hope it's helpful. A lot of the teachings are actually about leading you into a space where you actually begin to look or to look in a particular way. And so in a way, that's what this response is inviting you to do. Both the Nama Rupa question and then as it leads on to the what is there if I'm not the mind, if I'm not the body, what is there? My encouragement will be to investigate, have a look, find out. Another very quick question, if I can find it. What is the difference between Ajahn, a venerable monk, and presumably you mean a venerable monk or venerable nun, I hope? In our community, Ajahn is used as a term for people who've been ordained as a monk or a nun for at least 10 years, 10 vasa. So when you've complete your 10th vasa, then you become Ajahn. And before that, you're just plain old venerable, venerable monk, venerable nun. In Thailand, Ajahn is a term that's used for teacher. And so actually university lecturers, school teachers are often called Ajahn. And also much more junior members of the Sangha. But Ajahn Sumedho, in this community, the decision was that we would just have it for people who'd completed 10 vasa. So they become an elder, in a sense, after they've completed 10 vasa, and then they get called Ajahn. And it's the same for monks and nuns. We're all called Ajahn. Another nice short question that will need a little bit of a longer answer. How should a layperson who is interested in awakening spend their free time outside working and meditating? The Buddha gave a teaching on the highest blessings, like the things that bring the most beneficial results in terms of our practice. And it covers a lot more ground than just sitting in formal meditation or being on retreat. It includes things like considering who we associate with, trying to associate with people who are going to encourage us on our spiritual journey, rather than the ones who are going to take us away from spiritual practice or challenge our spiritual practice, but more people who can support us in our spiritual practice. Other things included in this particular list are things like supporting your parents, helping your parents if they're still alive, looking after your family, taking care of your family, having a suitable occupation. You know, there are some people who are able and very fortunate to find a profession that really kind of works very well with their spiritual practice in terms of right livelihood in the helping professions and other professions that are you know, like alternative medicine or medicine actually these different professions where you can actually spend your whole day cultivating skillful qualities just through your work or what we call work i have a friend who's a, an osteopath a cranial osteopath those of you who are familiar with that as a practice it's requires an enormous amount of presence and focus she says to me i don't meditate i don't do any meditation i don't have much time for meditation you know, and I say to her, but your whole life, your whole working life is meditation because of the focus that kind of practice demands. If you are fortunate to have a career that 
support your practice in that way, that's great. Finding a balance, because one of the things that can happen when we're used to doing good things, serving, helping, which are all really good things to do, is that we can do too much of it and exhaust ourselves. And this can be quite a serious problem, because if you do too much and exhaust yourself, then there can be the arising of resentment, burnout, a kind of indifference that can arise and just not wanting to be bothered. And so an important thing, aspect of our life, whether a monk or nun or a lay person, is to make sure that you take time to rest, to relax, to enjoy. So you really enjoy your life. So we might think practice is a kind of serious business that we have to do. We have to meditate and we have to do this very important, serious thing. And it is. It's the most precious, the most important thing that we can do in the whole of our life. But we can do it with joy and a sense of easeful happiness rather than making it something that's too intense. So free time outside working and meditating, resting, having a good rest, doing things you enjoy, having a hobby that you enjoy, spending time with your family, with good friends who are going to support you, being with nature, getting plenty of exercise, you know, things that support physical and mental well-being. And even if you've got lots of time doing some voluntary work, finding out things that you can do to support people who are less well-off than ourselves or something like that. These are all good things to do. Coming to the monastery, hanging out with the monks and nuns, helping in that way, I would suggest. Here's one. Dear Ajahn Chandasuri, can you please give some advice on how to focus the mind on ordinary, everyday desk work? <laughs> I sort of slightly feel behind this question is a sense of actually not particularly liking the ordinary, everyday desk work and a feeling that it's not your preferred choice of activity. I may be wrong about this. One time I had quite a lot of this to do. I was preparing a manual of training for the nuns community and it involved a lot of ordinary everyday desk work, sort of reading and writing and preparing and thinking about it. And a determination I made before I even started on the project was only to do it when I felt like it. <laughs> and that might seem really irresponsible. And you might think, well, you're never going to feel like it. But actually what happened was when I sat down to do it, it was a deliberate choice. It wasn't something that I felt I had to do. There wasn't that kind of pressure of duty or responsibility. It was something that I picked up because, well, in my opinion, it needed doing and I could do it. In fact, I did a lot more than I would have done otherwise, I think, having made this determination to only do it when I felt like it, because there wasn't the sort of ogre of duty breathing down my neck saying, come on, Chandasuri, you've got to get this finished, you've got to do this, or whatever. But it was more something that, oh, well, yeah, maybe I could do a bit this morning. Maybe I could do a bit every morning, just a couple of hours, something like that. And then making that kind of determination makes it into something much more enjoyable. What can happen with these kind of things that you know, can seem a bit like chores is that we kind of carry them around with us. We think, oh, I really should do that. Oh, but not now. I'll do something else. 
I'll do it tomorrow. And so your whole day, rather than actually doing it, is filled up with thoughts about having to do it. <laughs> and that can be very exhausting and very unpleasant. So I would encourage you to just do it when you feel like it. I think you might get a pleasant surprise. So you do it, you're with it, and then it's done. You've done the bit that you needed to do for today, so you can put it to one side and do whatever else you feel like doing. That would be my recommendation. Another sort of slightly shoulds and shouldn't one. <laughs> Dear Rajan, do you have any advice on how to make food a less important part of our life? I waste so much time thinking about food or expending energy to not eat things that are not good for me. <laughs> any advice would be very appreciated. We can't actually get away from the fact that food is rather an important part of our life. You can go without for a week or two, maybe. You can do fasting, which is perfectly fine if your body is reasonably healthy. It can manage it. And that's very pleasant. I mean, I don't fast for very long, but sometimes when I'm on retreat, I do a little fast. And I have to say, it is very nice to not be bothered to eat. I mean, actually, I like eating, but when you're on retreat, it's quite nice not to have to think about it too much. And I suppose, actually, this is a bit related to this question. I mean, one of the things I find about food is that when you're on retreat, particularly, you notice, you know, having an animal body, you know, these bodies are designed to eat and food tends to be delicious. I mean, we're not interested so much eating food that's not delicious. When we're hungry, we eat and eating is pleasurable and it needs to be pleasurable. Otherwise, we wouldn't bother. So it's very much a very important part of our life that we do eat. But how to make it a less important part? We can't make it less important. We need to eat. And it's good to take a bit of time to think about like eating carefully, eating responsibly, eating well. I definitely encourage that. So how do we avoid spending so much time thinking about food? You could keep the eight precepts for a bit, cut out supper. And that's if you don't have a family who you have to prepare food for. Some people like to prepare a whole lot of food all at one go and freeze it so that they don't have to cook every day. It's another thing. Keeping your food rather simple, not having too many elaborate sauces and not too complicated to prepare, just simple food. And actually just contemplating, as I've done a little bit earlier, is why am I eating? I'm eating to sustain the body, to nourish the body, keep the body healthy give it energy. That's why I'm eating. So when we actually reflect on food in this way, then the attitude changes. It changes over time. Thinking about contemplating where the food comes from is another very powerful contemplation. I find with eating, sometimes we have this word aditana, which means like resolution. So deciding to regulate your eating in certain ways can be helpful. So if there's something that you really enjoy that you know you shouldn't have, <laughs> maybe you just have it one day a week. You could have Sunday as your cheesecake day or whatever it is that you particularly like that's not good for you. Just have one day a week or a couple of days a week, you know, regulate it in that way so that when you actually have it, it's something you really enjoy rather than something that makes you feel guilty and awful. Oh, I shouldn't have had that. I know I shouldn't have this, but I'm going to. And you kind of have it and hope that you can get it down before you start feeling guilty. So 
allowing yourself a little bit of leeway can be helpful. Those are a few pointers. I'm sure if you could all get together, you'd probably come up with lots more. But a few suggestions. We eat from an arms bowl, and so all the food goes into the bowl. And mostly some people keep their pudding separate, but I like to put it all into the bowl. And some people mix it up, but I can't quite manage that except when I make a real resolution. But that's a very good way of just eating what you need to eat and not being so concerned about the different things that you've been offered each day. Yeah, so just realizing that you need to eat and that the body gets hungry. And when you're hungry, you want to eat something straight away right now, please. Also noticing when sometimes you're not really hungry and you know you're not hungry, but you feel like having something. That's a very important time to actually just stop and look at your mind. You know, what's going on in your mind? Because we do sometimes use food as a kind of source of comfort. I mean, when I lived as a lay person, I was rarely hungry. I mean, I ate normally, I suppose, but I was rarely hungry because every time there was a little bit of hunger, you could reach out and have something. Whereas as a nun, you know, you can't do that. There are certain times that you eat and that's it. It's not something to feel embarrassed about liking food or wanting to eat. It's normal. Perhaps that's enough about food. <laughs> I hope that's helpful. Here's a question. Thank you for the teachings. I would like to ask how you think pursuing a path as a writer of fiction or artist fits in with the spiritual path and following the Buddha's teachings. My sense is that as your path unfolds, you know, as you contemplate the teachings, as you practice meditation, as you contemplate your life, you'll find that your creative work will change naturally. It will evolve and you'll find that it'll fit in very nicely with your spiritual practice. Your spiritual practice will begin to inform your artwork and your writing. I'm imagining that this is what can happen. So they don't have to be at odds, you know, unless your writing is, you know, about, unless you have a lot of violence or sexuality or other kinds of unwholesome content in your fiction. I mean, even if you do, what you'll probably find is that's going to change, that's going to shift as your mind changes, because these things are what arises in the mind. Being an artist is what comes into the mind. It's a creation from the mind. You know, how your mind is, and the spiritual practice transforms the mind. You know, your mind changes. Your way of looking at things changes. Your values change. And that will naturally inform your artwork and your writing. I can understand that perhaps there may be situations where, in fact, if you change your writing too much, then the publishers won't be so interested anymore. And maybe that's just a risk you have to take. <laughs> My sense is that what will become more and more important to you is your own integrity. And you'll be less and less able to create things for commercial reasons, you know, out of an interest in it being popular and selling. My suspicion is that you'll just not want to do that anymore, if that's the case. They certainly don't need to be at odds. I know quite a lot of people who are artists and practice meditation, and quite a few writers as well. So I think it'll change. And it'll be interesting for you to see how it changes. 
Oh, yeah. <laughs> How can a chronic procrastinator kick the habit? Can the Dhamma and meditation help? Could you provide some practical advice? Thank you. In a way, this is relates to some of the other questions that we've had. I think one of the most helpful things with something like this is to observe how much suffering you experience as a result of this habit. And you might think, oh, well, I'm not suffering. I'll just put it off till tomorrow. It's okay. It can wait. Tomorrow's another day. But again, as I was saying about in response to an earlier question, you're going to be carrying this thing around that you've got to do. We might think that contemplating suffering is a very unhelpful, negative thing to do. But the Buddha said that suffering needs to be understood. And we only understand suffering when we actually are willing to look into it. So the suffering of procrastination is something that we need to look into. We need to experience it. What does it feel like? Do I really want to do this for the rest of my life? Obviously, for this person, they'd like to stop doing it. So number one, make sure you are fully aware of how unpleasant it is, how much it interferes with your life. I find lists are very helpful. I find it's quite helpful sometimes to look at what it is about the task that is, makes you want to put it off. What's unpleasant about it? Why don't you want to do it now? You know, investigate. Because it'll be to do with your mind, with your conditioning. Maybe you're frightened that it's going to bring a unpleasant, you know, if there's a conversation that you have to have that you think is going to be difficult. Maybe there's a fear or not wanting to be bothered, not wanting to do it. Maybe it's just not a job that you enjoy doing very much. Maybe there are other more interesting things that you'd like to do. What I found helpful, and this comes back to the desk work question, is that when I really decide to do it, actually you find that doing it, whatever the task is, is perfectly fine. <laughs> it's not such an unpleasant thing. It's not nearly as unpleasant as procrastinating. So it's a matter of really deciding. So you don't have to decide that you're going to do it right now, but you might decide, like one of the things I do, is, I mean, right now I say it's getting on for half past two. So if there was something that I had to do that I didn't particularly want to do, I might think, well, at five o'clock, I'm going to do this. <laughs> and when you set a time, somehow or other, that makes it easier. So at five o'clock comes and you just do it. And it's such a relief. So those are a few suggestions. Another question that I can't actually answer, given that Amarawati Retreat Center is going to be closed for some time. Can you advise on other retreat centers that offer longer retreats in the UK? I live in southwest London and obviously hope for something accessible. I mean, there is Gaia House, which is in Devon, I think. They do retreats and sometimes members of our community teach there. I think they're closed right now, probably, in doing online retreats. That's one place I know of. Probably the best thing will be just to go online and have a look and see what you can find. And there may be some that, you know, when you read about them, you think that doesn't feel right. But you can usually find out about the organizations. You know, there's a list of retreat centers and find out about the organization and just see if it has a good feeling about it for you. If so, then have a go. The other thing you can do is have a self-retreat or get together with some friends, like-minded friends, and rent somewhere in the countryside, and 
you know, if you've been on retreats here before, you'll have had the recordings of the retreat. You know, I know people who do this. They'll rent a cottage and spend a weekend or five days with maybe a couple of friends and arrange a, a kind of routine for themselves, a structure, listen to talks and use the guided meditations. And that can be a very profitable thing and quite a wonderful way of deepening your Dhamma friendships. And you may find that there are some conflicts along the way. You disagree about the length of meditation or about something or other. But these are things that you can work with. You know, when there's a spirit of goodwill and interest in supporting each other, it can be immensely beneficial. You can experiment with that. Or you can look into the possibility, I might get into trouble for even mentioning this, is, you know, think about whether you can rent somewhere and invite one of us to come and teach you. If you find a place where you can have, I don't know, 20, 30, 40, 50 people and organize it, then we can come. I suggest that if you are interested in doing that, you contact us first and let us know what you have in mind, and then we can consider it, whether that's viable or not. Don't arrange everything and then ask us, because it might not be something that we can actually offer. That's another possibility. Dear Ajahn Chandasiri, I've been practicing for many years and been to lots of retreats, but still find sitting meditation a struggle. Lately, I have found it easier to notice my wandering mind when sitting informally in nature. Do you have any advice? I have a lot of empathy. <laughs> it can be very difficult to cultivate a habit of regular sitting, particularly when the mind doesn't seem to settle very well or you have a lot of sleepiness or something like that. I do think it's helpful. I mean, I would encourage you to really keep up with a daily practice of formal sitting because although it might feel like a struggle, changes certainly happen. So I think it does have benefits. But by all means, sitting informally in nature, that's something I would strongly recommend being in nature, walking in nature, sitting in nature. One of the things I encourage sometimes is, particularly for people who have very full and busy lives, very demanding lives, and maybe not a lot of time for what we would think of as formal practice, as we've been doing on this retreat, is to encourage people to think of their meditation more as an opportunity to get to know themselves a bit. So like at the end of the day, rather than thinking you have to sort of sit in a very formal way, is to you know, sit in a comfortable chair and just notice how you are. You know, notice how the body is, notice how the mind is, the thoughts that you're having, any worries or concerns that might be there. Just observing them as almost like listening to a dear friend telling you about their day. So you're just attending, not feeling that you've got to sort anything out, but just attending to how things are for you. You know, and you might want to kind of give yourself a bit of encouragement to say, oh, that sounds difficult. Oh, that was difficult. Oh, Chandasiri, that's really difficult, that thing that you experienced. That must have been really painful. It sounds a bit mad, but I think it can be very beneficial. I'm not sure that we do enough of that. So it's like just another way of attending to the mind. You know, as I've said several times, you know, the Buddha encourages us to find what works for us. So if being too rigid, too formal about our practice is not beneficial, 
then find a way that you actually set aside a time that you're not doing anything else. I mean, that's really the key thing. So you're not planning anything, you're not thinking through a problem, but you're just there observing how your mind is, how your body is, just calming, settling into the moment with the mind and the body just the way they are. That's what I would suggest and encourage. And certainly sitting in nature is excellent. And if that's what you find most helpful as your daily practice, then having said that you should sit formally at home, maybe I revise that and just try to make sure regularly you spend time with yourself. Try not to make it a chore. That's the most important thing. Because otherwise you start hating it. And that's a great pity. So having it as something that you enjoy. So you have a regular time, perhaps. I'm giving you conflicting advice, but you pick what's useful for you. But what I find helpful is having a regular time. So, okay, 15 minutes or 20 minutes, half an hour, whatever's comfortable for you. Just do it. Just in the same way that you drink a cup of tea or clean your teeth. Just take time to do it. Don't worry about the results. Just do it. If the mind wanders, bring it back. If it wanders, bring it back. Just do it. And then just try to introduce meditation, this attitude of watchfulness, into everything you do. So, you know, being in nature, washing the dishes, walking to work, having a cup of coffee. There's the awareness there. So that way your whole life becomes like a meditation. Not the chore kind of meditation, but the meditation which is something that we do and we enjoy it. You know, we're curious about it. We're interested. We want to learn about the way that we cause ourselves suffering. We want to find out how not to do that. This is something that has immense benefit. So try to see it more in that way. It's something you're doing as the greatest kindness, not as a chore, otherwise you'll feel guilty. <laughs> That's very unfortunate when that happens. Maybe you need to have a little holiday from it. Give yourself a couple of weeks when you don't do any and see how that feels. And you may find that you actually want to get back into it. But I find just having a regular time and just doing it, whether it's wonderful, sometimes it'll be wonderful, sometimes it's not so wonderful. And that's okay. It's okay. Just keep doing it. That's what I'd encourage. Dear Ajahn, or question for Ajahn, please. I've been reflecting on the aspect of letting go versus passivity. Sometimes it seems that there is a lot of tension in the mind to actually act upon the thoughts as they feel so valid. It is really difficult to just let go. And yet sometimes there is no solution. So perhaps the best way would be to actually do so, to decrease suffering, especially in some complex family or social interactions. Would you please be able to elaborate on this and help me understand how to balance the two? It's interesting, isn't it, how sometimes with a problem it becomes quite an obsession. There's a difficulty. The mind just keeps going to it over and over again. It's almost like a magnet. It just draws the mind. And we know that we should let go. We know that we shouldn't mind whatever it is that we're considering. But somehow or other, the mind is irresistibly drawn <laughs> to the problem, like a moth to a candle flame. It just can't help itself. We can't either be totally passive, nor can we let go. So we're kind of stuck. The more that we want to let go, the more difficult it becomes. So you have this kind of thing happening in your mind, and sort of like 
you're grasping onto it like this and you're saying, I should let go, I should let go. The Buddha said, let go. Ajahn Chah says, let go. Everybody says, let go. And I really want to let go. Every time you think like that, it seems to get tighter. Often the problem is that there's a kind of a logic to the pattern of thinking. It's almost as though it's going to solve the problem. And maybe in the past you've done this and it's sort of solved the problem. But in my experience, acting out of that kind of compulsion, it may have some result, but often it's not the best result. In my experience, the best result happens when we can let go. So how do we let go? We've got this thing. We know we should let go. How do we let go? I like to use a simile of a child or actually even better, a dog. So those of you who've had a dog, experience of dogs, when they steal your slippers and they've got the slipper in their mouth and you get the slipper, you hold it, you start pulling it, sort of trying to get it from them and they hold tighter and tighter. And then you drop the other slipper just a little bit further away and immediately they let go. They get distracted by the other slipper and they go to that. So one of the suggestions that the Buddha made with regard to letting go was just shift your focus. Rather than being up here thinking that I should let go, I must let go, bring the focus somewhere else. This is where the body is really, really helpful. So when there's a thought, you know, how does it affect you physically? You know, usually the first thing I notice is my face tenses up. So I encourage people to develop the soft face practice where you just consciously relax your face, relax around your shoulders, relax in your belly, relax your hands. Walking meditation. Walking meditation is brilliant for these kind of situations because it is really difficult to let go of something just because you want to let go. Whereas if you just get on your path, put the awareness into your feet as you're walking, that will help you to establish presence. And out of that presence, then you may find a completely different solution arising. So just experiment with shifting the focus, I would suggest, as the most helpful way of establishing presence. Just contemplating the foundations of mindfulness that I spoke about this morning. Contemplating body, feelings, the mind itself, thought, thought objects. But... In my experience, bringing the awareness into the body is one of the most helpful things. The other one that I've also mentioned earlier is picking out a phrase. So you have this thing going on in your mind about this problem that you've got to sort out with this other person. Pick out a phrase. It can be any phrase. It can be a totally stupid phrase, but something out of your mind. And explore that. And what I found when I do that is an instant letting go. It's very interesting. So there's a kind of whispering, mumbling away, all this compulsive thinking, and you just bring it round to have a look at it. Okay, what's this? What are these thoughts? Can I hear what you're saying? So it's a way of objectifying thought in order to, as a way of establishing presence, as a way of letting go. And I guarantee that the result will be better than simply following that pattern of thinking, acting on it. Even though it's good ideas and you want the best, usually it doesn't work out quite so well as when you can just really relax internally and come from a place of inner quiet. 
much easier said than done, and you'll probably get it wrong lots of times, but little by little, you'll find that things will change and you'll find different ways, different techniques that can be helpful. So you can experiment. And I really wish you well with that. And rather than seeing it as this terrible, really difficult thing that you've got to do, you know, one of the things I've found with practice over the years is that it's kind of, it becomes more like a game in some ways, game of skill. <laughs> and sometimes you get it wrong, you lose, and sometimes you win. And it's always interesting. And there's always a sense of self-respect and kindness towards oneself. I'd say that was fundamental. You know, you're choosing to do this. So it can seem like a very serious business. But see if you can find ways to just lighten it up a little bit. Maybe not necessarily if you're in a difficult relationship having a problem with somebody. You don't necessarily have to be too light and flippant with the other person. But more kind of internal lightness of heart. I say don't be too flippant with them because sometimes that can be very hurtful. It's as though you're not taking it seriously. But it's almost as though it's so serious that you don't want to be too serious about it. You can ponder that one and quote me if you like. There's a question here about conscious dreaming. Would this be beneficial for a practice? If so, do you have any practical advice? And I have to say, it's only something I've heard about. Different people have spoken about it, but I've never done it myself. And I do dream, but wouldn't say it's particularly conscious. There are books about it, so maybe if you go online, you can find a good book. They say it's very beneficial, but it's not something I've experienced. And another question, another, what I would call a difficult question, because I don't know the answer. What do you recommend our approach to or relationship with the unseen realm should be if we are experiencing them? I'm talking about subtle energies, invisible beings and guides, interspecies communication, etc. Thank you. So if you're experiencing them, I suggest that you see them in the same way as you see your the scene realms as changing, unsatisfactory, and not who and what you are. An attitude of curiosity, perhaps. But I wouldn't encourage you getting too involved with them. Sometimes we can experience like a sort of like a ghostly presence or something. And the advice I've always been given with that is if there is a feeling of like some kind of being or some entity, is just to wish it well and send it on its way. If there's a feeling of fear or it's a really unpleasant experience, then establishing myself in the triple gem reciting passages of the suttas, namotasa, bodhang sarananga chami, just reminding myself of the practice and just wishing it well. May you be well. Please leave now. It's time to go. One time when we thought there was a ghost, our cottage at Chidhurst, Ajahn Sumedho sent us down to chant the Karaniya Metta Sutta, the Buddha's words on loving kindness and just to wish whatever it was, wish it well. So I'm not saying that necessarily that we should make much of it, or neither am I saying that they don't exist. It's something that my experience is just very limited. There can be a fascination with these things. We can involve ourselves with them. 
I wouldn't actually recommend that. I think it's more important just to wish them well, okay, time to go, and to just keep establishing yourself in present moment awareness rather than getting fascinated by these things. So wishing them well, you know, please, time to go now. That's what I would suggest. So it's not that they don't exist and not that we should make too much of them if they do exist. There'll be other teachers who'll give different advice and... I'm always quite curious when people who do have experience of these things speak about them. I'm interested, but my sense is that unless you really have a very good guide, it's better just to steer away from that kind of experience. I mean, they say that there's all kinds of beings everywhere supporting us. All the devas who kind of want us to be liberated, who come along to help us. These are wonderful, encouraging thoughts. But I don't know. <laughs> Ajahn, we are asked not to identify ourselves with thoughts, emotions, and the body. It is not easy, although I believe I have a glimpse of this possibility during meditation on impermanence, as far as emotions and thoughts are concerned. However, when it comes to physical pain, I cannot make this movement of non-identification, ending up adding mental suffering to the physical one. Can you give any teaching on that? This is very interesting because after the morning session, I went to where Ajahn Amaro was offering the mealtime blessing. And he was talking about a teaching that the Buddha gave about the two arrows. Some of you may have heard of that. How a soldier in battle, you know, he gets wounded by one arrow, but he has a choice about the second arrow. And in the same way with physical pain or any kind of pain, the first arrow is the pain, but the second arrow is when we struggle with the pain, when we feel we shouldn't have it, when we want to get away from it, want to get rid of it. It is difficult having physical pain, and there are some levels of pain that are really very, very hard to bear. This is certainly the case. But having said that, a lot of the problem with physical pain is our fear of it, our not wanting to have it, our wanting to get rid of it. A story I often tell of going to the dentist, Years ago, I went and I had three injections for three fillings. They were in different parts of my mouth. And I felt absolutely awful for a whole day afterwards. <laughs> I didn't have any pain for the actual drilling, but it was a hangover, very unpleasant. So I decided the next time I wasn't going to have an injection. So as I was preparing to go to the dentist, I could feel a kind of slight anxiety about it and then when I opened my mouth and he started looking and saying, yes, well, there's going to be a filling here. I thought, But I kept relaxing. I just made my practice just to keep relaxing. The sort of sitting in the chair. I mean, they tip you back, don't they? And I sort of had my hands like this on my lap and just tried to keep it like a nice, smooth oval, just like this. And whenever I lost mindfulness, if I got caught into the pain, my thumbs would come up like this. So then I would say, okay, just relax like this. So I would focus on my hands, even though the pain was very, very strong. And it became just like a sensation. It was much more manageable. And the interesting thing with that, it was about perhaps 30 seconds of quite intense pain. And the rest of it was fine. So instead of having a hangover for a whole day, or the equivalent of a hangover, 30 seconds... So realizing that a lot of physical pain, a lot of the struggle with physical pain is the second arrow, the not wanting it, being afraid of having it, trying to avoid it. So the movement of non-identification is when we actually observe it, 
you know, rather than thinking, this is my pain, this is terrible, I've got to get rid of it. You know, can we observe it? Can we notice it? Is it a burning pain? Is it a throbbing pain? Is it a dull ache? You know, you can use words to describe it. It's another very helpful way of just standing back a little bit. Where exactly is the pain? Am I feeling the pain up here? Or is it in whichever part of the body is unwell? Where is the pain? How do I know that I'm in pain? Find these ways to kind of play with it, to examine it. And if it's really very bad, then you can thank the National Health Service for any painkillers they're able to provide as a last resort. I have to admit I've done that on occasion when I've been experiencing very extreme pain. But there are many pains that are much more manageable once we learn how to be curious about it and to relax around it. The question here, could we please do some Vipassana meditation? I think we can think of all of the meditation we've been doing this weekend as Vipassana. My encouragement has been to reflect on our experience and to use our experience as a way of bringing about understanding of the nature of the mind and body. This is not the same as a type of meditation which is called Vipassana, which is Goenka tradition refers to its meditation technique. This is not the same as that. I don't really understand that. I don't really know what that practice is, although it's obviously very beneficial and many, many people have done it. But the kind of meditation we do here is mostly what I would call vipassana. So it's more a question of attitude than a particular technique, giving rise to insight, to understanding. And the final question, I think it is the final question, which we'd really need several days for this, I think. <laughs> How can Buddhist practice help us to respond skillfully to the climate eco-crisis? And this is a really, really important question. Just the very fact of doing Buddhist practice is helpful because we're learning how to not get totally caught up and obsessed with the particular information that we receive about it. Learning how to keep things in their proper perspective. Learning how to consider... I mean, we could say that the eco-crisis has come about because of human greed, wanting more, trying to get more than is actually required for survival. So as individuals, what we can do in relation to the eco-crisis is really challenge the assumptions that we make about what we have to have and see if we can just reduce our consumption so that we're not constantly surrounding ourselves with things that are just going to land up in the ocean. Learning, beginning to consider things in this way, which is one of the things that as monastics we're encouraged to do. We have a reflection on what we call the four requisites, you know, something to wear, something to eat, some kind of shelter, and medicine. You know, these are the four things that human beings need to live, you know, with a reasonable degree of comfort. So you consider your life in relation to these four basic requirements. Do I have what I need? Do I have an awful lot more than I need? Can I reduce? Looking at practical ways that we can respond, and a lot of creative thinking. I mean, there seem to be many very interesting initiatives out there of people doing things to help with the whole issue of sustainability and putting pressure on governments to change their policies, informing ourselves, you know, learning what we can about the situation. 
But I do encourage you to try to do that not in a way that brings about a lot of unhelpful concern or anxiety or worry. We don't need to do that. You know, one of the wonderful things is that there are things that we can do. <laughs> so we can celebrate that. We can work together with other people. Getting together, if you have a gift of some kind, like if you're a good writer or if you're a good speaker or if you're a good organizer, then there may be things that you can initiate or do. But please be careful with how much information you take in, because a lot of it is very concerning. And I think, you know, one of the things that can happen with people is that they get totally overwhelmed, you know, by the images that they see on TV or read about. And they get overwhelmed, they get angry, they get upset, they get confused. It brings up all kinds of really unhelpful emotions. So we want to walk the planet with a heart of kindness, a heart of compassion for ourselves, for each other, and for the beings who are actually creating a lot of these problems. Because once they can see clearly and understand and appreciate the results, the effects of their decisions, of the way that they use their wealth, then hopefully they'll begin to consider ways of living their lives, using their wealth, using their influence in a way that we're much more skillful, much more beneficial. So try not to fall into hatred or ill will towards anybody, really. You know, sometimes the stories that we hear and the way that they're presented bring a lot of very strong feeling, you know, fear. There's a lot of fear around, and that's actually not particularly helpful. So I would encourage more as an attitude of wise concern and compassion and interest and a sense of balance and calm and a willingness to act when we can see a course of action that might be helpful. But don't burn yourself out over it. So see it as like a community endeavor, a community project. We'll do the best we can and there'll be a result. And it may be that things get really difficult and awful, but you know, we'll know that we've done what we could. There's a very nice book, actually, that, that Dajan Sajito's written about this very topic. And it starts off pretty grim statistics. And then he talks a lot more about ways of responding from the point of view of Buddhist practice. It's called Buddha Nature, Human Nature. So if you can get a copy of that, probably it's online. So I'd recommend having a look at that. And there are some very good books about this topic. So that would be my suggestion. And do keep coming on retreat in whatever form you can. Can you speak a little about the meaning of the deathless and the unborn, please? There was a very lovely teaching that we recite sometimes that comes in the Udana, where the Buddha speaks about that which is unborn and said that if the unborn, the uncreated, unformed didn't exist, there would be no escape from the world of the born, the created, and so on. But there is the unborn, therefore the escape can be known. Where is it? Not sure where it is. So you can find it. Somebody's going to have a look on our behalf. The other question that I missed out on was who would you describe the Sangha in the modern world in non-monastic life? And how can we support each other, given the isolation and individuality culture that we live in? I mean, just the very fact that you're asking this question is a good sign 
because there's clearly a recognition of the fact that for many people there's a strong sense of isolation and huge emphasis on individuality. In a way, I've kind of suggested indirectly some of the ways that people can support each other in a lay situation. I mean, one is by coming to the monastery as much as possible, but the other is by getting together, getting together for practice, getting together to arrange events or to study, do different things. That's very helpful and also very challenging. Because of the individuality, we're not very skilled at cooperating. So actually consciously deciding as a group of practitioners that you're going to get together even just once a week or once a fortnight or once a month for an hour's meditation or something or to meditate and to read something together. That's incredibly, very significant, very important part of practice. And that's where there's really a sense of community or sangha. Sangha is a difficult word because it means different things to different people. <laughs> there are people who say that even the nuns aren't part of sangha because we don't have the higher ordination, but I object strongly to that. <laughs> so there is the conventional sangha, which is like the monastic orders, the monks and the nuns. Then there's what's called the Arya sangha, which is the all the people, whether they're monks or nuns or lay people, who have attained to a particular level of understanding. So there's four levels. You don't have to really know about that, but who at least have gone beyond doubt, attachment to rites and rituals, and belief in the personality. If you've reached that stage, then you're part of the Arya Sangha. Frankly, I wouldn't worry too much about that, because what's much more important is the fact that you're on the path, and there are ways that you can support each other. I'm not going to take a lot of time now to talk about it, but certainly coming on retreat is good. Coming to the monastery or any of the monasteries is good. Coming to offer dana or to participate in events in the monasteries. These are all things where you meet other people who are living in a similar circumstances to your own. And just that can give a very strong sense of community. But it is true, particularly with COVID, there's been a lot of physical separation. Although this Zoom technology has actually really supported quite a remarkable coming together. It's definitely not the same as being together physically and sort of hanging out together, drinking tea, going for a walk. But it's something, it's a reminder that there are lots and lots of other people who have a similar interest, similar aspiration, similar love of this teaching and way of practice. So these are some thoughts about that one. And then we found the unborn. So the actual verse is, there is an unborn unoriginated, uncreated, and unformed. If there was not this unborn, unoriginated, uncreated, this unformed, freedom from the world of the born, the originated, the creative, the formed, would not be possible. The unborn, the unoriginated, the deathless realm is, again, another of those things that very difficult to describe. <laughs> it's more a matter of pointing to what it's not. So it's not created, it's not impermanent, it's not anicca, it's not dukkha, it's not anatta. Well, it is anatta, there's no self in it. And it is something that as human beings we can aspire to and that we can experience. We can have little glimpses of it, like when there's a quality of perfect presence and our sense of individuality, separation, being a separate particular person falls away. And for most of us, it's something we only have little glimpses of. 
but we can be encouraged by this teaching, this verse. And in fact, the verse, like mindfulness being the path to the deathless, we're actually living in the present rather than inclining to some kind of future state, some kind of imagined state, which can never really exist or satisfy us. And similarly, lingering in the past, and our memories are constantly changing and we distort. You know, we can't really know the past. The past is past. We can know a memory, we can see how that changes. So the present is where we keep cultivating the present moment awareness. That's how we get a taste of the deathless. And as that becomes more continuous, then it becomes more and more of reality for us. So these are a few pointers.